Turn your Bibles to Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. We'll be finishing out the chapter today, and next week we have a guest speaker, one of the guys who's going to be joining us at Renew. A few weeks ago we had Will Broadus, who's a few people from his church going to be joining us, and a few people from Todd Perkins' church, uh, East North Church, just across town. Uh, they'll be joining us as well for Renew, just a few couples there, and Todd will be here speaking next week. Following week after that, we have a guy named Seda Sakaguchi from Tokyo, um, who was he, we've been supporting as a church. Um, he's going to be back to tell us a little bit about the Tokyo mission, how it's been going, and then he's going to help plant a second church in Tokyo, and we're excited about that. So the next two weeks, we'll be taking a break from Romans. Um, before we dig into Romans, uh, I just wanted to let everybody know that the folks who came from went from our church to the Dominican Republic, they got there safely. They are sound. Um, God's already given them favor. They've had a relaxing start to things. Saturday was kind of a slow start. Um, This morning, Aaron is preaching in Oasis Church, and then the team afterwards is going to be going to the border of Haiti and uh, the Dominican Republic there and ministering on both sides of the border with kind of the similar thing that they did before with uh, children's ministry and um, a VBS-type ministry, and they'll be able to reach they think a couple hundred people on the Dominican Republic side and about 300 children on the Haiti side. So if you'll be in prayer for them, and um, even before that, if we can just together right now pray for their safety. Um, Haiti can be a volatile place, especially in a, in a backwoods area like they're going to be going to. So let's pray for them, pray for the gospel to go forth, and then pray for their safety. So let's join me together as we pray, and then we'll read God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have done a good work in us, that you have saved us by your grace, Lord. Um, All of us are only saved by your grace, Lord. So when we send out teams to share the gospel, it's not because we're superior or we have anything in ourselves to offer. But God, we, we know that we are confident to go forth with your gospel because you have given us your good news. And you've told us to proclaim your good news to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would empower and enable the team that is in the Dominican Republic right now to partner together with those churches there to proclaim the good news and to make disciples of all nations. God, I pray that you would protect them, that you would watch out over them, that you would keep them safe, that you would make their ministry there effective, and would they be a support and encouragement to the believers and the churches there. God, we pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans 8. We're going to be reading verses 31 to 39. And um, over the last little while, we've, we've started this new tradition that I want to continue today. And how good have you stand and we'll read God's word together. Stand, you can stand now. It's a way of honoring God and, and worshiping God practically, physically. If you're not able to stand, please don't feel compulsion to do so. But those who are able to stand, let's stand and worship God by reading his holy inspired word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
saw tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are treated, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for wonderfully encouraging scriptures like this. God, I pray that although these are very familiar, quoted, and memorized words, Lord, I pray that you would have them sink deep into our hearts and minds, that you would give us fresh hope, fresh confidence, fresh joy, fresh rest in you. Would we apply these words to our minds? Would we apply these words to our hearts? God, would we have ever-growing security and confidence in you as a result God, would you empower me by your Holy Spirit to speak your words? And Father, I pray that you would give us all the grace to hear. May we be attentive to your words. May we be alert to your words. Would we listen attentively to you, Father? And would you speak to our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I got to ride a ride, a roller coaster. It's become one of my favorites at SeaWorld in Florida, and it's called the Manta. And I thought that I'd share it with you for a second. Um, And if you get motion sickness, you can just look down. But if you want, uh, it's not 3D or anything. So go ahead and hit the play. And it's about a minute long video here. The thing about this ride is actually you are laying flat and you're inverted. So it feels like you're soaring and flying as you're going on this roller coaster because you're facing straight down. And the only thing holding you on is this harness. And it's, it's holding you here as you go upside down and inverted and you go through a bunch of corkscrews And it gives you the sensation of flying through the air. And it feels like you're out in the open. And it feels like if this harness lets loose, you're, well, it not only feels like it. If it let loose, you would go flying. And you would crash into trees or go into the pavement or buildings or the like. Does all kinds of crazy corkscrews and the like. And um, it's it's one, it's a very smooth ride, but it's a very thrilling ride because it makes you feel like Nothing is keeping you back. Nothing's encumbering you. So you can experience all the heights and the depths, all the ups and downs, the twists and turns, and and all the scary parts of the ride. Well, you can go ahead and stop the ride. I think that gives you enough of a feel for the roller coaster. And um, George, you can hit the lights back on here so people don't fall asleep. It's so dark in here. I wanted to share that illustration of a ride with you because life can, can be like that sometimes. It can be It can be a little scary. It can be really, truly scary if you think about what might happen. You can have ups and downs in life. You can have twists and turns in life. And it can be a little frightening, disconcerting. Last year, when I rode that roller coaster, the reason why I wanted to show that to you was last year when I rode that roller coaster, I thought I was going to die. I'm not joking. I mean, I really literally thought I was going to die. I said, not like figuratively, like, oh, I was scared. Um, No, I I rode that roller coaster like at least a dozen times before that over the years. 
But last year, I get onto the roller coaster, and there's, when you first get on, you sit down, and that's normal, and then this, the harness comes down over you, and then the pins click in, and then you are lifted up so that you're inverted and facing the ground before it even starts, and then it starts off. That's, that's really great, and it's like kind of a thrill, and you're like, ooh. Um, but last year when I rode it, I got on, the harness came down, and there was no click. And I was going like this and jiggling the, the harness back and forth. And, and it was like, click, 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 click. I'm like, something's wrong here. I've, I've done this a dozen times. I've never done this before. And I'm panicking. I mean, like really panicking. And Noah and Abby are beside me. And they're like, hey, what's going on? I'm not like, oh, something's wrong. And I'm like, are, are your things okay? And they're like, yeah, it's great. And theirs were all like lock solid, how you want them to feel. And mine was not lock solid. And I was trying to get it to lock and it wouldn't lock. And, and so the lady's coming by doing all the checks. And she comes by and I'm like, hey, 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 hey. Uh, mine, mine's not, something's wrong here. And it keeps making this clicking noise. Like the, the little buzzers are click, 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 click. But it's not latching. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? And we're just getting ready to pull off. And so she goes and she looks back at the screen and she goes, oh, oh, yeah, you're, you're not secure. It's not clicked in. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And... I'm like, oh, okay. And then I'm thinking she's going to do something about it. And then about 30 seconds later, we invert. And we take off. And I, I flipped out. I thought I was going to die at that moment going up that big hill because you're facing straight down. And all I can imagine is, what if this thing really isn't solidly clicked? Obviously, I didn't die, by the way. Just, just a spoiler alert. Um, I didn't fall. I, my face wasn't mangled, um, but I was up, going up the ride, and I have never been terrified of a roller coaster like that before. And I was terrified because I thought, there is no way I'm going to make it. There is no way that I'm going to survive this, because not only does it go upside, like inverted, it goes upside down and out, and then it flings you down. And I don't care how strong you are at, at, at 56 miles an hour as top speed, there's no way you're hanging on. And, and I'm petrified. I mean, I am sweating bullets, and I am praying to Jesus. I mean, I'm literally, I'm, I'm crying out to God. Oh, God, please, oh, God, please, oh, God, please. And somewhere as we were going up, I, I, I know now that it clicked in. But I didn't know that the whole ride. So that minute and a half seemed like the longest minute and a half of my entire life. Because I was totally petrified. And I was, I was trying to devise ways like, Okay, how can I hang on here, even if this thing comes open? So I had my, like, my arm up here, my other arm up here, holding onto the sides of the roller coaster. And I'm like, okay, now, what if I wrap my legs around the other sides? And, and I mean, I was, I was the whole time, and it went by so slow. And, and I was just terrified at every twist and turn, every up and down. And I really, truly thought I was going to die. And, and I get off the ride, and I'm like, my face is white as a ghost. My kids are like, what's wrong? I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm never riding again. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, the entire ride I was freaked out, and I, I thought I'd be flung to a violent death. And, I, and I, I never felt so close to death than in that moment, even though I really wasn't. And, you know, the difference between that time and all the other times that I rode the coaster before and really liked it, and by the way, I really didn't like that time at all, and uh, I'm not so thrilled about going back on that coaster, um, was despite the scary inversions and the hills and being flung and flying, I had confidence that I was safe and secure. 
You know, I had confidence that I was securely in place and that the designer had made it so that I would stay there and I wouldn't go anywhere and that ultimately I'd make it to the end of whatever that destination was and I would conquer the coaster, but, but not because of any feat of my own. You know, to say you conquered a coaster is kind of silly because the engineer designed the equipment to keep you right where you're supposed to be, even though it can be scary. As Christians in life, sometimes we feel like we're completely insecure because we, we hear the clicking in life. We, circumstances don't go our way, and we, we feel like we're going to be lost to God and lost to life. We feel like we're going to be flung into outer space, we're going to be flung violently to our death, and we're petrified, we're terrified. And the thing that makes a difference between when we have confidence and trust and rest is, is, are you aware that you are secure in God? Are you aware that you're secure in God's love for you? Are you aware that he doesn't want any harm for you? Not only that, that all harm has already been placed on his son, and so now he wants and will and promises to keep you because he is for you. He's the ultimate engineer who's designed in, in, in Romans few verses earlier in verses 27 to 30 there, he talks about how he's foreknew you and he predestined you to get to where he wants you to go. You can be sure of that. You can be sure that he's predestined you, he's called you, he's justified you, um, and, and, and he will ultimately glorify. You're going to make it to your destination. Even though you might die, he, you're going to make it to your destination. Even if, if it's through a bunch of twists and turns and ups and downs of life. And so the Apostle Paul is is really, he's responding to those wonderful truths in verses 27 to 31. And he wants us to have confidence and know that we're safe and secure in the midst of all the trouble, the ups and downs, the scary parts of life that we might have. And he wants us to know and believe and to live in the good of the fact that we overwhelmingly conquer. Really, it's the main idea, the main point of these verses that we're going to draw out and talk about this morning is that we overwhelmingly conquer in life because God is for us and nothing separates us from his love. We overwhelmingly conquer in life because God is for us and nothing separates us from his love. Our conquering really ultimately has nothing to do with ourselves. It's all to do with the fact that we're secure in him. That he's for us and nothing will separate us from from his love. Now my illustration falls a little bit short because life isn't a thrill ride. It doesn't always turn out okay. There's real risk. There is suffering. There might be hurt. We might die, but we are more secure in the midst of any trouble we encounter than being, we can't ever be more secure than being in God's designed harness, if you will. He, he has already predetermined where we're going. And so what shall we say to these things? He controls the ride. He controls the outcome. We can trust in him. We can have confidence in him. If God set his love on us personally, which if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, If you have believed in him for the forgiveness of sins and you said, God, please forgive me for going my own way and I want to trust in you and rest in you. Thank you that you sent your son to die in my place. And if you love God, it's because he loved you and he foreknew you. He set his love on you. He knew you in love. But not only that, he's effectively called you. He's effectually called you, just like he called Lazarus, which we talked about last week. And he's justified you. He's made you completely righteous. And your future is so secure that he speaks of you as if you've already been glorified. 
So Paul says, what should we say to these things, these wonderful truths that we've received? They aren't supposed to just sit on us most and be like, oh, okay, that's nice. It's meant to affect us. It's meant to give us confidence, to give us hope in him. It's meant to give us joy in him. To, that what we, might, we might enjoy life, not, not enjoy suffering, but have joy in the midst of suffering. Joy in the midst of weakness. Joy in the midst of even when we sin, we can have joy knowing he's forgiven us and we're secure. So Paul addresses this concern in two ways. He wants us to be secure, to know that we're safe in him, to know that we're secure, to know that nothing can take us from his love. So he does this in two ways. And look down your Bibles in verses 31 to 34. He gives us really the first way that we can know that we will overwhelmingly conquer in life. And he says, because no opposition can be successful against us. That's the, that's the, that's the point in verses 31 to 34, that no opposition can be successful against us. It doesn't mean we won't have opposition. That would be ridiculous to claim that when you become a Christian, we have no opposition. Actually, in fact, most of the time, it increases opposition. We have spiritual opposition that increases when you become a believer. You can have opposition from other people that increase as you become a believer. You will face the opposition of your own conflict with sin that you would never have conflicted with prior to becoming a believer. You have opposition within and opposition without. It doesn't mean that there will be no opposition, but no opposition can be successful against us. Look in verses 35 to 39. And then he says, no separation can divorce us from God's love. No separation can divorce us from God's love. Those are the two main ideas The two points that we're going to see of of how we can be confident that we overwhelmingly conquer in the midst of life. First is no opposition can be successful against us and then no separation can divorce us from God's love. Because God has chosen us, he chose to know you, to love you. If you love God, if you've repented, if you place your trust in him, you can be confident he loved you before you were born. He predestined you to be conformed to his image and he's already called you and justified you and he sees you as glorified. So what does all of this mean? That's what Paul is answering. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, these things is, is referring to those verses there in 27 to 31, but it's also really referring to all of what he's written so far because this is the end of a transition in his letter. He's about to transition to the second half of his letter. And so he's saying, all the things I've written about and especially what I just wrote about... What shall we say to these things? If you really get, if you really understand all these things I've been telling you, Paul says, what does it mean? What should you say to these things? What should be the effect in you? And he's, he's wanting the effect to be that no opposition, for us to know and be confident, no opposition can be successful against us. Look in verse 31, if you will, in your Bibles, please. And by the way, I, I, I like for us always to look back and forth between Scripture because I want you to see where what I'm saying is coming from Scripture. And if I'm saying anything is deviating from Scripture, I want you to know that. So look down your Bibles in verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What Paul is saying is, is believer, you don't need to be afraid of anyone or anything. No matter who comes against you, they can't defeat you because God is for you. God is for you. Now, we've all experienced times when we have a friend and they say they're all for us, but then we get the feeling they're not really for us and they end up 
doing things to harm us or gossip or slander about us. And, and then we can say, you know, I'm, not, I'm not really confident that they're for me. We've all had those kinds of relationships, right? Anybody ever have a relationship like that where you're not really sure, is somebody really for me? Now, we also hopefully have had those times where you have at least one person in your life, hopefully, where you realize, you know what? They're really for me. Even when I go crazy, even when I'm, I'm, I sin, you know, even when I sin against them, I, you know what? They've always been for me. Hopefully, you'll experience that in life. If not, though, what Paul is saying is that there is one who is closer to you than anyone else who is not against you any longer, who is because you've been called and loved, predestined and justified. Now, God's for you. Nothing's against you. Nothing. Nothing can be against you because God himself is for you. He's declared you righteous. He's called you. He's going to make you glorified. He's predestined you. He is for you. And if nobody, nobody can stop the good that God is working in us and for us, and that's the context of these verses, this is God is for us, God is for our ultimate good. He is for the good that he's predestined us to. He is for the good of making us into the image of Christ. He is for the good of glorifying us. And God, if God Almighty is for you, who, who could be greater it's a rhetorical question, by the way, that Paul's asking. He, the answer is no one. No one is greater than God. You know, I had a buddy who was in the Army Cavalry and, in 1990 to 91, and he was sent overseas to the first Gulf War. And um, the media was a little nervous, and most of our country was pretty nervous back at the time. Um, it was the fourth largest military in the world. There was about a million men that Iraq had. They had the fourth largest tank brigade in the world. So the U.S., the Soviet Union, China, and Iraq. And so the media was freaking out and saying, wow, you know, this is going to take a long time. It's going to be a protracted war. It's going to be a long effort to free Kuwait at the time. And, and so they were, they were worried that it was going to cause a lot of casualties, as my friend, though, went into the war, he was, he was confident, not because he thought he was invincible or anything foolish like that. He, he knew he would face opposition. He knew the opposition would be fierce, but he had confidence because he knew the commanders. And, and he knew that ultimately the guy who was leading the battle, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf, kind of the patent of his day, he knew that he was a strong leader and they would win no matter what opposition. In the end, they faced about 100 hours of ground forces, and they called a ceasefire after 100 hours, and the war was over. The coalition of forces suffered about 350 soldiers, which is still terrible, but compared to the 25,000 in Iraq's forces, they were, they were overwhelmingly successful. They faced opposition, but... They were successful, and my friend had confidence because he, was, he knew how strong his forces, their forces were. In, in life, we will face battles, and we might face a fierce enemy. In fact, we do face fierce enemies, right? We face the fierce enemy of the devil. And you know what? Even, even the archangel Michael rebuked him in Jesus' name. So we face a fierce enemy. We face principalities and powers. We face our, the, a great enemy, a great enemy of the devil. We face the great enemy of our remaining and dwelling sin. 
The sinful nature that still remains, although its power has been put to death, it still remains. We face that enemy. We face opposition from other people. We face persecution. And sometimes those forces can seem overwhelming. But let us not forget if God is for us, who can be against us? Ultimately, no opposition will be successful against us because God is for us and on our behalf. And so he makes the point here that really God is our sovereign protector. He's, why would we fear anyone? Because no one compares to him. No one is able to take us out of God's predestined, predetermined plan. No one is able to keep us from being conformed to the image of Christ. No one is able to stop us from the good that God has in mind, even if it doesn't feel or seem very good. And it often doesn't, if you're honest. Well, look in verse 32. He gives us more grounds, more of a foundation for how we can be confident that we're going to be overwhelmingly conquering in life And that no opposition will be successful. And look in verse 32. Read it together with me. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about for a moment what's most precious to you. What's the most precious thing to you? Maybe you have a a possession or a car or a house. For me, I can't think of anything more precious than and more valuable to me than Julie, my wife, and my children. There is no one else besides God who is more precious, more valuable to me than, than my wife and my kids. And you know what? I, I would, I've only had my children for about 16 years. I've only known Julie since 1990, so it's going on 27 years. But I would give up anything for Julie and my children. I wouldn't trade fame, I wouldn't trade fortune, I wouldn't trade any position in the world or any amount of money, and I would fight for them to the bitter end. I couldn't imagine sacrificing them ahead of me. The thought is repugnant. It's awful. I I couldn't imagine giving them up for anybody else. I just wouldn't do it. That's an awful thing to say in one sense because as Christians we're we're supposed to be willing to give anything else up. But you know in my heart that I don't have that desire. I want to protect them. Now part of that's actually good. Part of that is a reflection of just how much the Father loves us. Whenever you feel that much affection and closeness and love and desire to protect, we're meant to see that that is a small picture of how much God loves us and how much he loves his own son. Now, if you think about it for a minute, God, who is completely perfect in every way, he, he for all eternity past has enjoyed complete fellowship and union and a close love with his own son. So think about any familial ties and affections you might have now. Expand that out to eternity past. And if your son, now he wasn't born to God, but he's in the relationship of son to God, so if, if your child was in eternity past and had a perfect relationship and there was never any sin, you would have a fierce affection and a good affection. So when it says that God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up or gave him up in a free way, as other translations put it, ESV just says gave him up, but freely gave him up for us. Think about how meaningful that is. Think about how astounding that is. 
You know, the picture of Abraham being willing to give up Isaac, and yet God's stopping him and saying, no, I'm going to provide a substitute. And, and God provided a perfect substitute in his own son. Before creation, God always enjoyed a loving relationship with, with his son, and yet he says, I, I'm going to choose to love all those who I've foreknown, who I've called, who I, will, who I predestined. I'm going to I'm going to choose to love them so much that I'm going to send my own son and I'm not going to keep him back. The most precious, valuable one in all of history. He says, God did not spare his son. Don't wonder if God loves you if you have placed your faith in him. He did not spare his son. That's what Paul's saying. For God to give up his son to be humble, to become a man, to suffer, to be humiliated, abused, rejected, and killed, it's unimaginable. I could not imagine giving up my own son, my own children for that. But that's how much God loves us, that he did not spare. He didn't hold back. He didn't keep his son. But not only does it mean he didn't keep his son back, he didn't spare him, he didn't spare his son from being punished. What it also means is he spared no bit of punishment for his son for our sins. He spared no bit of punishment on his son for our sins. Every bit of punishment that we deserved, he did not spare his son from suffering. Like how John Murray put it, the quote for you, he says, The father did not spare his own son. Sparing refers to suffering inflicted. Parents spare their children when they do not inflict the full measure of chastisement due. Judges spare criminals when they do not pronounce a sentence commensurate with the crime committed. By way of contrast, this is not what the God the father did. He did not withhold or lighten one whit of the full toll of judgment executed upon his own well-beloved and only begotten son. There was no alleviation of the stroke, for it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, as it says in Isaiah 53.10. There was no mitigation. Judgment was dispensed upon the son in its unrelieved intensity. Spared not expresses nothing else, nothing less. He did not spare his own son. How will he not also with him graciously or freely give us everything that we need for our good to be made into his image, to be glorified? That's the context. It's like Acts 2.23. Peter, speaking to the Jews, tells us, he says, this Jesus was delivered up. It's the same language. God delivered Jesus. God delivered Jesus according to, Peter says, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God did not spare his son but delivered him up. It wasn't Judas. It wasn't Pilate, although they played a part. It wasn't the Jews. It was God who delivered him up is what Peter's telling us, is what Romans is telling us. God delivered him up. He didn't spare his son. He loved us so much. And it says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, don't be confused. This does not mean that God's going to give you everything you want. Because you know what? Sometimes we want a mist. We ask a mist. We don't know what we need that's truly for our good. That's truly what is best for us. But it says, he'll graciously, how will he not desire to graciously give us all things? How will he not graciously give us all things? Now, all things in this context is all things, look back in verses 27 to 31, all things that pertain to what? Being conformed to the image of God of Jesus, and being predestined to his image, being glorified in him. How will God not also graciously give you everything you need to be glorified? That's meant to be extremely encouraging. 
what that's meant to tell you is that, you know what, I might not get the things I want. I might not get money or fame or fortune or have lots of friends. I might not get the relationship with somebody else that I want. I might, people might not like me. People might reject me. I, I don't get the things that I desire that are even are good things. They're not bad things, but they're not the best things is what this says. Because God graciously desires to give you all things that are truly for your good. Sometimes we get angry with God. You ever get angry with God when you don't get what you want? If you're honest, I, I do. If I don't get what I want or financial ends don't meet or if I don't have the success that I'd like or if I don't have the notoriety, whatever those idols are that we desire, when we don't get what we want, we can be tempted to be angry with God. But God lovingly shows us you, you don't need those things because I graciously desire to give you all things. I've not withheld anything I won't withhold anything you truly need. You, now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't come to God with requests. We should, but we can trust in him that he knows best and he's going to give us all the things we need for our good to be conformed to his image that we might be glorified. And ultimately, what more could you want than to be glorified like Jesus, right? He says, I'm going to graciously give you, give you all things you need for that end. It doesn't mean you're going to be healthy and wealthy contrary to the heresy that's around that says if, if you just believe enough He'll make you completely healthy, completely wealthy. That's, that's nonsense. Actually, sometimes a lot of wealth is punishment because God turns us over to our own desires. And God says, no, I love you too much to give you what you want because you think those things are going to fulfill you. And let me, I want you to know what truly is fulfilling. That relationship is not what's going to truly fulfill you. That, that person is not going to truly fulfill you. Um, having a spouse is not truly going to fulfill you. Having money is not going to truly fulfill you. Fame or fortune, whatever those things you think will give you ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in life. God says, sometimes, sometimes, not always, says, no. I'm, I'm not going to completely heal you. No, not this time. Because I want you to know that you will be satisfied only in me because ultimately that's the thing that will satisfy you the most. We can be confident that he did not withhold his son. He will not withhold anything that we, we need. He'll give us graciously all things. Now look at verse 33. He gives us more solid grounds here. Verse 33 says, Who will bring any charge? How can we be sure we're going to overwhelmingly conquer? Well, because no one can bring a charge against us. Who will bring any charge? Look in your Bible. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then he answers his question, Rhetorically, no, it's God justifies. Now think about that for a moment. You can be confident and sure that you're going to overwhelmingly conquer in life, that no opposition will be successful because God is the one who justifies you. In our country, if you commit a crime and you go to court, you might be sentenced, you might be found guilty. You can still make an appeal, though, to a higher court of authority. You can appeal to the appellate court, and sometimes the state level, the federal level, and then eventually you can make a final appeal to the Supreme Court. But even with Supreme Court, Supreme Court can kind of be overruled by Congress, by Congress passing a new law or making changes to the Constitution in drastic times. But there's no higher appeal than God. He is the final appeal. When it comes to justice, he's the final arbitrator of what is just and right and good, of what's truly right, of what's truly acceptable. He is the final justice, the one who says either somebody deserves or does not deserve punishment because God is the only perfect one. He's the final authority. Nobody can overrule him. So how can you be confident? If God's justified you, no one can unjustify you. There's no higher authority. There's no higher appeal doesn't matter what charge or accusation is brought against you. A few, I think last year in April, 
somebody had found a knife on the, the site of O.J. Simpson's old house. And if you're familiar with the trial, you know that he was acquitted. And so when they found this knife, they're thinking, wow, what happens now? Because he's been acquitted of this crime. He's been found not guilty and he's not able to be tried again. If you've been acquitted, you can't be tried again for that same crime. And so what happens if this knife is really a murder weapon, and if it proves to have his prints or have DNA evidence that it was coming from him. And the conclusion that they reached, even before they found it wasn't really the knife, it was just a knife that some construction worker had found on the property. But the conclusion they reached was, you know what, it doesn't really matter. Even if it, he was guilty, even if his prints were on it, he couldn't be accused again. That was the conclusion they reached because he'd been acquitted. Now, for us, we kind of recoil against that because we think it's an injustice. Well, the truth is, God has actually punished his son for our sins completely. So it's not unjust like that. It's God says, no, they are guilty. And Jesus says, I'll take all their guilt. And he's taken every last bit of guilt. It's, it's not because there wasn't enough evidence. It was because the evidence was overwhelming and Jesus was punished for us. And so now it says God justifies us. He declares us as righteous because there has been a just punishment paid. So when your conscience condemns you and you feel like you're unrighteous, because if you're a believer, you're going to feel that way at times. Because you're aware of your experience and you're aware that you know that you've sinned. You know that you've not pleased God. You've lived in a way that's not pleasing to him. But what you need to remind yourself is, okay, that's true, but my hope is not of that. My hope is in the fact that God has justified me. What he's declared, can, no one can condemn me. I've been acquitted. That doesn't mean we don't take sin seriously, but it means we have hope when we sin. That we can be reconciled again to him because he's ultimately reconciled us. When other people say that you're worthless and no good. Anybody here ever have somebody tell you you're worthless or no good? And how horrible is it when that's your own parent or a friend? And that can affect your identity and who you are. And this verse speaks to you and says, no, no charge can be brought against you if you placed your faith in, in Jesus. God justifies you. God has already justified you. When the devil accuses of you of your sin and says, you know, you are the worst person there is and, and no one will understand and if anybody finds out what you really did, everyone will hate you and think you're awful and that might be true but what you can say in those moments because of this verse is that God who justifies you can say, you know what, I am guilty but someone's been punished for me and so now I've been declared righteous and I don't have to pretend this, this fallacy that I'm not I'm not on my own guilty, but what I can say is I'm going to own that and say, yeah, I'm guilty of all those things and far more than I know. But Jesus was found guilty in my place and he was condemned and so now I am justified. No one can condemn me. And then look down at verse 34. Paul fortifies our foundation even more. He says, who's to condemn? Not only does God justify you so there's no condemnation, you can't, can't be condemnation against you. He says, who's to condemn? He answers the question. Now, in, in, in our Western minds, we don't, we don't read the answer naturally right away. He says, who's to condemn? And then he says something. He says, look in your Bibles. Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, the right hand of God is interceding for us. And you might think for a minute, Paul's not answering the question. Right? He says, who's to condemn? And he says, well, Jesus died, more than that, he was raised, the right hand of God is interceding for us. But what you need to realize is he's actually directly answering that question. Who's to condemn? And he's saying the reason why there's nobody condemned why nobody can condemn, is because Jesus died in condemnation for you. He was condemned to death for you. 
That's what Paul's saying. Jesus, Christ Jesus was already condemned for you. And then you might think, well, how can I be certain? How can I know for sure that God really doesn't hold anything against me, that I'm not condemned? And he says, he wasn't just condemned to death for you. It says he was raised. And what does that mean, he's raised? What it means is the fact that God completely accepted the condemnation that was poured out on Jesus so that he didn't have to keep being condemned. It lets you know that no condemnation remains because if condemnation remained, Jesus would have remained dead. If wrath remained to be poured out, Jesus would have remained in the grave. That's what Paul is saying is Jesus died and he didn't remain in the grave. And so all condemnation has been paid for completely. And so he's been raised to life. And the fact that he's been raised to life is proof that the sacrifice has been completely paid. No condemnation remains. And then he says something else. Not only did Jesus die for your condemnation, he, he was condemned for you to death. And he says he was raised to prove that it was acceptable. But then something else. Jesus was put in the acceptable place at God's right hand. Now what does that mean? And, and, and for us, we, we don't understand the right hand, left hand. You know, I hold hands with my wife, my right hand. Sometimes I hold hands with my left. Depends on where the road is, you know. It, it, but this is meaningful. It says he was at the right hand of God. That was the place of supreme honor for a regent, for a king. This was a place of honor. It would be where a co-ruler would sit. Often the queen would sit there when they were ruling together. And this is saying he's at the right hand. Not only was he condemned for you, God was completely satisfied, so he raised him up. But God's no longer displeased with you or with him. He's completely pleased because the sacrifice is paid. He's so pleased that he's put Jesus in the place of supreme honor. And he's interceding for you too. Not only is he pleased with him, he's interceding for you. And so you can be sure no one condemns you because even when in the Old Testament there's a picture of Satan going before God to condemn Job, right? He's trying to condemn Job. He's arguing against, against God, with God, for God. And it says, no. That's not going to happen because Jesus is actually interceding for us. No matter who might accuse us, at what level, Jesus from the top down is interceding for us. He's our intercessor, our advocate. No condemnation remains. Hebrews 7.25 tells us something similar about, the, about Jesus appealing to the Father for our sake. And Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who are drawn near to God through him. Since... Since he always lives to make intercession for them, there's no condemnation. No opposition can be successful. We overwhelmingly conquer in the midst of life because God's for us and nothing separates us. But not only can no opposition be successful, the second reason Paul gives for our confidence in life is that no separation can divorce us from God's love. No separation can divorce us from God's love. Look, look down your Bibles. He uses the word separation twice, right? Look in verse 35, it says, who shall separate us? And then look in verse 39, nothing will be able to separate us. Now that's important, because the word for separation, it's the same word that elsewhere in the majority of the New Testament is used when, some, when the marriage union has been separated. When there's been that kind of separation, the pulling apart but look at the verse 35. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? Or maybe our weakness? Or our sin? After all, we reason we wouldn't love somebody as weak or sinful as we are. 
And so we project our emotions onto God and, and yet we might be tempted to think that when we see our sin and weakness or circumstances or difficulties or trials or when we're not healed or when we don't have money or when things go badly for us, you might be tempted to think that Jesus must, must have separated from us. He must, have, he must be getting rid of us. He must have gotten rid of us because he's, he's not providing for us like a husband would. We experience difficulty and we can translate that to mean that Jesus must not love us because if he really loves us, we wouldn't experience what we, what we are. But Paul gives us a whole list of things that, we, that can tempt us, right? He gives, he gives us a whole list of things that can tempt us to feel separated from God's love. He says, how about tribulation? And that word for tribulation, it means to be pressed together. It's... It's like being put in a wine press is really the imagery there. You, you don't experience tribulation. You're going to be so pressed down with situations. Will that separate us from the love of God? How about tribulation, Paul says? When you feel like you're being crushed in dire straits and being under extreme pressure. He says, how about distress? And that word for distress, it, it's, it's a metaphor. It actually means to be in a narrow place. And you ever, in, in English, you're between a rock and a hard place. You ever heard that phrase? You know, I'm, I feel like I'm between a rock and a hard place. That's distress. That's that feeling of distress. There is nowhere to go. Sometimes extreme pressure makes us feel like that. Sometimes being in a rock and a hard place, no way out. He says, how about persecution? You can feel in love, harassed for your beliefs. Harassed because you believe in Jesus, things get worse for you. You think, well, maybe he doesn't really love me because why would he let me be persecuted for him? And then he says, famine. How about famine? You know, in this country, not a lot of us have ever experienced famine. But, but maybe you've had a, a famine in other ways. Maybe you've had times when you feel like you're so hungry you're going to die. Maybe, that's, maybe it's not physically, but metaphorically speaking. He says, no, even if you're facing nothing, you're facing starvation, don't think somehow that Jesus has divorced you. Nothing can separate you. Even if you're naked, and, and that, that word's euphemism for being exposed or ashamed, being laid bare, being embarrassed. He says, remember, you aren't separated from the love of Christ. He's not ashamed of you. He clothes you in his robes of righteousness. Even if you're a place of danger and bad things happen to you, a place of peril, don't forget, Jesus still loves you, and the danger or peril in is not a sign he's been separated from Jesus. He's not divorced you. He still loves you. Maybe you'll be thrust through or, or cut to pieces with a sword. Your very life is threatened. Or you're put to death violent. He says, don't be confused. It doesn't mean Jesus has left you somehow. He still loves you. If you think about it, the Apostle Paul actually experienced all of these threats. He experienced all of these threats in real ways, and eventually, he was put through with the sword. Doug Moo writes, all these Paul himself has experienced and he has been able to prove for himself that they are quite incapable of disrupting his relationship with the love of Christ. God's love, what he's trying to tell you, believer, God's love is not tied to your situation, your circumstance. You can't assume because you're experiencing any of those things that God doesn't love us. He says, no. Don't let yourself go there. That's not true. God's predestined you. He's called you. He will, he will carry out what is truly good for you. He will glorify you. He's justified you. He won't spare anything from you. He loves you so much that he didn't withhold Jesus from you. 
not only that, God perpetuates our love for Christ. You can be sure that he's going to keep you loving him too. Tom Schreiner in his commentary in Romans says, he is also saying the love of Christ is so powerful that believers will not forsake him despite the sword, persecution, famine, and so on. You can be confident that God's love for you and that he'll keep you in his love. Nothing can separate you. You are locked in securely. Now, now look, look at the next verse in verse 36. You, you might notice the formatting's a little different. Look down your Bibles. You, you see how the formatting in your Bible, if you have a, a version of the Bible, the ESV is a little different. It's kind of indented a little bit. And it's kind of an odd, odd phrase there, and it kind of takes you by surprise in the middle of this verse. And said, look down in your Bible in verse 36. It says, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And you're like, what in the world's up with that, Paul? Hang on, I just, I just thought you just said, what did verse 35 say? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then now you're saying, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're like, that kind of feels like separation. And we're like sheep on the way to the slaughterhouse, just kind of, mm, whatever sheep do, or that's a cow, I guess. And he said, you know, on the way there. And they're being led to slaughter. They can't do anything about it. They're in the stockade here, and they're, they're being led to slaughter. And what Paul's doing is he's quoting Psalm 44. He's quoting Psalm 44. And verse 22, is, it's, it's the exact quote, word for word. The sons of Korah are pouring out their lament because it feels like, and it is like, many of them, of the people of Israel, are being killed all day long. And it feels like they're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The psalm opens up with verses 4 to 8. He says, I think I have it for you on overheads here, in verses 4 to 8 of Psalm 44, it says, it begins with something. It says, you are my God, oh, you are my king, O oh God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Does that sound familiar, ordain salvation? You've been predestined, Romans 8. He says, though through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we boast continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. But, then it goes on, the lament is that, but they're killing us. We're like sheep led to the slaughter. But it ends in in verse 44. There is a hope that the sons of Korah look forward to and, and in verse 25 of chapter 44, he says, For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. It's like we're crawling on the ground. Rise up, is the plea. Come to our help, they cry to God. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Now in Romans 8, Paul says, You have the steadfast love. He has redeemed you. Nothing will separate you because of that. You can be certain. You don't have to wonder, why are we going through these things? You can trust and rest in God, still cry out to God in the midst of our distress, and he does deliver. But if he does not always deliver, he will always keep us. We can be confident that we actually have God's steadfast love, not because of our performance, but because of Christ's sacrifice for us, because he's justified us. And and, the NIV says we might face death. I think that's too light. No, no, it's just, for your sake, we face death. No, we're being killed all day long because you know what? In life, sometimes it feels like that. You ever feel like that? I feel like I'm being killed here. 
I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm just like a sheep. Do you ever feel that way? He says, you know, even if you feel that way, nothing will separate you. Why? Because your love is secure in Christ. You have his steadfast love. You don't have to ask for his steadfast love. You have it. Look in verse seven, 37. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We, are, we conquer more than a conqueror does. We overwhelmingly conquer. It's the only place in the New Testament. Paul, it's one of Paul's made-up words, if you will. He said, we overwhelmingly conquer. We conqueringly conquer. And you're thinking, Paul, are you insane? Didn't you just give us a list of where we're like sheep being led to the slaughter? We have tribulation and distress and nakedness and famine and danger and peril. The sword, how in the world, what do you mean, Paul? Are you just, are you teasing us saying we're overwhelmingly conquer? Now notice, and there's, there's, there's some words right after it says no. He says no in all these things. Now, what's the these things? The these things is distress and nakedness of famine and peril and sword. This is not the health and wealth gospel. This is the gospel that says in the midst of those things, in the midst of terrible things happening, in those things you conquer. In those things you conquer. But then notice something else, how you conquer. How do you conquer? Just two words. Anybody want to say it? How, how, how do we conquer? You can say it out loud. Through him. Through him who loved us. It's through Christ Jesus who loved us that we overwhelmingly conquer. Because he conquered. And we are in him. He has conquered death and hell and the grave. He has conquered every trial that we might face. He has all authority and power over everything that we might face. He is preeminent in all things for our sake. And because we are in him, in him we conquer. And we conquer through him who loved us and gave himself for us. So then now look at verses 38 and 39. It says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers. By the way, the word for rulers there is is referring to the the rulers of, of the air, the principalities, the powers, the demonic forces, neither angels nor demonic forces, neither anything in this in this life, nor even death. No, nor things present in this present time, nor things in the future. No height, no depth. And then he, he rules everything else. Nothing else, not anything else in all creation. I mean, what can separate you from the love of God? How, how will you be insecure? He says, there's nothing that can make you insecure in him. Whether you believe that or not, he says, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your death, the death of a loved one, can't separate us. No powerful angel or the mightiest demonic ruler or force can separate you. Nothing you face here and now, no trial, no hardship, no calamity, no difficulty, no one, nothing in all creation, no hurricane, no storm, no volcano, no earthquake, no tsunami, no virus, no bacteria, uh, no remaining sin, no weakness, nothing can separate you, no part of nature can separate you. If someone doesn't love you, if somebody rejects you, they can't separate you. No, no thing and no one, nothing can separate you in all creation. And so we have the most wonderfully confident scripture. We know that, you know what, it doesn't matter how you feel. You don't have to be insecure. You are locked in securely. The one who designed our life 
the great engineer, the one who's the creator of all, who designed us and designed the path and the course that we're on for us individually. We all have our own ride that we ride, if you will. He designed each and every one of us. He designed where we're going. He's predestined us. And if you love God, he's working all things together for your good. He loves you. He's going to make you into his image. He's going to glorify you. He's not spared anything from you. No opposition will be successful against you. And no separation can divorce you from his love. I can't think of better news. We're held securely. He's going he's to keep us to the end of the roller coaster ride we're on. We can be sure it's going to result in our ultimate good. And he wants us to rest and trust and have confidence in his love and the fact that he's for us for the rest of our lives. Amen? Well, the band go ahead and come up and then we'll sing a song, but let's close in prayer as they're coming up. Gotta pray for each and every one here who is, is not feeling these verses right now. Everybody here is struggling because of the situation or circumstance or difficulty, Lord. I pray that if, if they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, Lord, I pray that you would drive this truth home, that we would rejoice and rest and revel and have joy in the midst of everything. Knowing that you are for us and no one can be against us. You don't condemn us. You justify us. You love us completely and no one can divorce us from you. And you will never divorce us. You will never leave us or forsake us. God, I pray for those who do not know you, who have not placed their hope and their faith in you here. God, I pray that you would give them a desire to have this confidence and I pray, Father, that you would move on their hearts to repent of living for themselves, repent of their sins, and to place their full trust and hope in you, trusting that you were punished in their place, you were condemned for them, so that they too might experience your complete justification, your hope, your endless love, your forever marriage to Christ. We pray these things in your name. And God, I pray that you might help all of us rejoice in you. Revel in your love securely. In Jesus' name, amen.